Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 9th, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is fried. Okay. Going first is really hard, you guys. It's a really brave thing to do. So please give a big round of applause and all your support for Nomi. Woohoo! So this is a story about a woman named Mrs. Freed. And the story takes place, it starts in Santa Monica. I grew up in Massachusetts, but over 25 years ago, my husband and I moved to Los Angeles. And let me just back up to just frame this story. How many of you have ever won anything? Won any, like, I never win anything except once. Here's how it happened. So this is partly a story about my husband. Um, he's a sucker for two things, charity and old Jewish people. So one day, we'd probably gone to visit our dear friend, Matthew Walker, from Wellfleet. The Walker family, Wellfleet. And he moved to Santa Monica around the same time that we moved to L.A., so we're in Santa Monica, and I don't know if any of you spent time there, but we're taking a lovely walk along the promenade, which is overlooking the ocean. And a little old Jewish lady comes up to us, Mrs. Freed. And she starts chatting us up. And there's nothing my husband likes to do better than chat up little old Jewish people. And she starts talking to us, and she whips out exactly this, a set of tickets. And she says she's selling raffle tickets for pioneer women. Probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people in this room, but those of you who know, know. It's a nice, venerable, old Jewish charity. So of course, my husband eagerly buys a raffle ticket. We chat with her. End of the day, we go home. Forget all about it. Weeks pass, maybe months pass, um, and one day I'm like sweeping, and I find one of these, and I, I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Another week passes, and the phone rings. Remember back when we didn't have cell phones, because this is like 20, 25 years ago? And remember that period of time when your phone would always ring at like 6 at night and there would always be people trying to sell you something and it was some scam. So the phone rings and I pick it up and I hear this woman's voice saying, Hi, I'm calling to tell you that you have won a brand new car. And I think it's a scam. So I'm hanging up. And they say, no, 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 you probably think this is a scam, but you have really won a brand new car. We're calling from Pioneer Women. And so this is sort of ringing a bell, and I'm like, okay. 
And then I'm kind of excited, like, wow, we won a brand new car. But I'm also hearing the voice of my father in my head, who whenever I would watch game shows back in the 70s, he would always tell you, you don't want to win anything because you always end, you have to pay taxes on whatever you win. It's like, it's not going to be good. Like, don't think that if you win something, it's going to be good. So I'm sort of feeling internally conflicted, like it's really exciting, but my father's voice is in my head. But I decided to go with the excitement, and, and they said, it's a, I can't remember what, like, a, can you swear? It's, it was some shitty, like, tin aluminum can of a car. I can't remember what it's called. I don't really know about cars. A Geo. It was a Geo, but like the low-grade version of it. She's like explaining like no automatic windows, no air conditioning, no radio. And she says, you know, you have a choice. You could take the car if you really want, but most people elect just to take the cash value of the car and then make a nice donation to Pioneer Women. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty good. So we go with the cash value. And um, at the time, my brother, my baby brother, eight years younger than me, was just about to start graduate school. And I'm thinking about my father and the taxes, and we don't want to pay the tax. So I figure my brother, he's a poor graduate student, we give the money to my brother so he can buy a car and he can pay the taxes at a lower tax bracket. So I'm like, this is, this is great. I'm feeling really great about the whole thing. Weeks pass, maybe a month, maybe two. It's Sunday morning, Sunday morning. We're at home, we're in bed, and we hear, a rap at the door. So we, we go to the door. And we open the door. And this spry little woman, Mrs. Freed, springs into our house. And my husband's in his bathrobe. And Mrs. Freed says, remember me, sonny boy? I'm Mrs. Freed. And we're, we don't know who the hell she is. She says, you bought the raffle ticket from me. And we're looking at her like, what is this woman doing in our house? And she says, don't you think I deserve a little recompensation? <laughs> and we're looking at her like she's crazy. And besides which, how does she know where we live? And she was like this like dybbuk that had sprung into our house. So we try to talk her down, and we don't know what to do. And she's not taking no for an answer. And my, my husband says, well, we, we gave the car to my, to my uh, brother-in-law. She said, well, what about me? I have children and grandchildren to support. And I'm how are we going to get this woman out of our house? This crazy lady, pointing her finger, stayed in our house for about 20 minutes until finally the way we got rid of her is she pulled out some more raffle tickets. And she said, well, I'm also selling raffle tickets for the Jewish Federation. And my husband, of course, was all too happy to buy some more raffle tickets. The last thing I'll say, because I know I'm out of time, I'm not exactly sure her name was Freed. I kind of made that up. But that's the end of my story. Next up, we have Susan Landry. Susan Landry, welcome Susan Landry. Uh, 
Um, so this is a story of a summer romance here in Wellfleet, uh, summer of 2006. So everything started out perfect. We had the vacation cottage, that was perfect. We had the two characters, the guy, him, me, the gal. Okay, so everything was good. We went biking, we went hiking, we went to the beach, we had everything, it was great. But that afternoon, we'd had a big fight. So things were not so good. And we were feeling really grumpy and kind of mean. And um, so we had a margarita and decided we should just take showers and get dressed and go out to dinner. So we did that and we walked over to the bookstore restaurant for dinner. And we had a couple of margaritas at the bar waiting for our table. And then we ordered a bottle of wine when we got to the table. So this night could go either way. And I was thinking that the relationship or the whatever it was at this point could go either way as well. So I was looking for a sign. I was looking for some way to figure out which way it was all going to go. So we were eating fried oysters. And um, all of a sudden, he spits something into his napkin. He said, there's a rock in my oyster. And I'm thinking, there's no rocks in Wellfleet oysters. I know that, right? So that's not going to happen. So we looked at the little thing that he'd spit out and it was actually a pearl. So it was this tiny little black pearl in potentia. It was partly formed. So I thought, this is the sign. This is the sign. All of a sudden, we have hope. We have a future. We have possibilities. We have potential, right? So we have, I'm all excited. Everything's golden, you know, lights flying around and, you know, angels singing and stuff. And so he gives me the little pearl, and I'm holding it in my hand for maybe a nanosecond, and I drop it. And I drop it on the table, and I catch my breath, and I think, oh, and then it bounces off the table onto the floor. And if you've been to the restaurant bookstore, it's a bookstore restaurant, it has a floor on the porch that's like slat wood and, you know, with big wide gaps. And you look down and go, oh. And the gaps lead into sand. And you know, sand, it's like, okay, lots of broken shells, broken dreams, whatever. You're never, you're never gonna find that little pearl, right? Okay, so I'm about to cry. He looks at me like, you're kidding. I'm like, yeah, I know. And we're just sitting there. It's like everything just died. It just you know, the lights were gone, the golden glow, everything was dark. And we had this little like moment, it was like, okay, this is really just not good. And I'm really about to cry, I'm trembling, and he hates scenes in public. So he does what any man should do in the situation. He's this huge guy, he's like six foot four, he's like over 200 pounds, and he takes his big hulk, pushes back his chair, and he gets down under the table to look for the pearl in potentia. I think that's so sweet, right? But I'm still feeling a little nervous and dark and sad. So he's down there, you know, feeling around on the floor, looking for it, and he gets back up eventually and sits down and he has his really frowny face on. I'm like, okay, well, what did I expect? There was just no way he was gonna find that on this floor, in this dark, and the whole thing was just, this is the sign, right? This is the sign I'm looking for. Okay, I got the sign. It's over. So then I see his little towel. So he has this little 
you know, kind of a little dimple on his left cheek and it's starting to quiver. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on? I said, so what happened? And he says, I found it. And I said, you found it? He said, yes, I found it. And I said, no, you didn't, you found it? He said, yes, I found it and you can't have it. <laughs> I said, Okay, that's okay. So he takes his rumpled up greasy napkin and he lays it out really flat on the table and he puts the little pearl and potentia in and he rolls it up and folds it like a little flag and he takes some tin foil from something we were eating and wraps it up and puts it in his shirt pocket. And I'm thinking, okay, we still have some hope. And later, you know, he was going to give it to me, and he did give it to me much later. And um, I wrapped it up in some, I put the whole little package without opening it. And I put it in a little baggie, and I wrapped that little baggie up. And I put it in a little zippered pocket inside a little zippered pouch. And I put that in my little bag that I carry. And I kept it with me for probably eight or nine years. And every once in a while, I would check it and see if it was still there. And I'd open it up, and I'd open the zipper and I'd bring it out and I'd open the thing and I'd always have like a beating heart and you know like my heart's in my throat and I would always be afraid that it wasn't there and it always was there and um, but that night we didn't know what was going to happen we didn't know that maybe a pearl and potentia is just a pearl and potentia and so but we were very happy the golden glow came back and you know um, we had a really good night we ate with vim and vigor we had hope we had possibility and we had a future thank you our next storyteller is Jerry Riley. So I want to tell you about my first business trip. That was, uh, it was 1979. I was just out of college. I got my first job. I was kind of a hellraiser in college. Now I got my first job working for this little electronics company. Time to buckle down, you know, young man. I gotta, you know, I'm gonna have a career now. So I'm working there maybe only a month, three weeks, a month. My boss calls me and he says, "I want you to go to the UCLA Medical Center and install all this equipment." And I come out of there. And I'm, I'm all excited. I'm, I'm going on a business trip. A business. I'm a young businessman. I'm going on a business trip, and I think this is kind of cool. And you know, and uh, so I come out. And I tell my friend. Uh, uh, Linda works there about, about this thing. She says, you know, my, my roommate, Susan, just got married. I told you about that. They moved out to L.A. and they don't know anybody out there. So when you go out there, you should look them up. And I'm sure that, you know, they'd love to see somebody from back home. And I said, all right. But meanwhile, I'm all excited. I'm, I'm, I'm going on a business trip. So I started doing all the things you do back then. You call the travel agent. You start booking tickets. And, you know, and I have to go get, I get a suit. And I'm because, I'm, you know, you got to look the part, the businessman, you know. And uh, so the day comes and I, I, uh, I take a cab to the airport. Never did that before because that's what us business guys do, you know, and I get on this plane and fly across the country. Never been to L.A., land in L.A. I go and I rent a car because business people rent cars, you know, and I drive to the UCLA Medical Center and it's like, and I'm thinking like I'm striding in a, you know, Fortune 500 company and, and, and as soon as I get there, reality starts to diverge a little bit because it turns out this, uh, it's this doctor I'm going to see. He, he's like 30 years old, and he runs uh, the psychology research lab. And, you know, he's got hair down to here, and he's kind of a hippie guy. And everybody in there is like, well, this isn't quite what I was thinking. But it's all good, and I set all, all this equipment. And uh, we get to the end of the day, and he says, so what are you doing? Are you just turning around and heading home? And I said, no, no, I've never been here before, so I'm going to stay the weekend. And he said, where are you staying? I said, we're the best western down the street. And he says, no, 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 you come back to my house. I've I got plenty of room. I'm having a party tonight. You'll have a great time. 
So I'm thinking, well, this doesn't sound like a business trip, but okay, that works for me. So, you know, I, I, like I go back to his house. He starts cooking food. Next thing you know, the whole house fills up with a cast of characters, great people, all this, this big party going on. Next thing you know, everybody's smoking pot, and I'm thinking, well, this is definitely not a business trip, but like, it's okay, that works for me. And uh, so the party's going on. At some point, a guy comes in, walks in the door, and he says, hey, John, I got that mescaline for you. And I said, definitely not a business trip. So anyway, I spend the weekend there. Um, I, you know, he gives me a key. I'm coming and going. It gets to be Sunday morning. I wake up. I'm going to go meet uh, Linda's friends, who I've never met before. I'm going to meet them for brunch. And I say goodbye to John. I'm on way out the door. And he says, by the way, I saw you perk up when my friend came in with that mescaline the other day. You want to hit for the road? I said, sure, why not? So he gives me this thing, and I put it in a pocket, and that's it. So I'm going to, uh, uh, to uh, Venice Beach to a restaurant to meet these people. Now, Venice Beach, if you've ever been, been there, it's kind of like cartoon California. There's a boardwalk. All human life is there. There's the bodybuilders and the beach babes and the motorcycle guys and everybody. It's a scene. So I get to this restaurant, and I'm just pulling up, and I thought, maybe I'll just pop that mescaline. This is like 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I thought, you know, it won't kick in until after brunch anyway. And uh, so, and so I do, and I go in, and I sit down. To go in, I meet these people. Never met them before in my life. We sit down. They're very nice. They bring us in, they give us a table right by the, the excuse me, the boardwalk. There's like a there's a railing, and we're right inside the railing. So we're gabbing, we're talking, we order all this food, and uh, having a great old time, everything's fine. Just right before the food comes, all of a sudden, ka-king, like, oh, I forgot all about that. Uh, it, and I'm thinking, it's okay, that's okay. I'll, they'll nobody be the wise. I, I, I'm cool, I'll keep this under control. So anyway, the food comes, and uh, but at this point, I can't eat. I, I'm just, I've lost my appetite. So I'm talking, I'm gabbing, it's all great, and I'm pushing my food around, and we're gabbing, and everything's going good, and I think this is fine. And just before, you know, like, just as these people are finishing their dinner, suddenly the wheels start popping off one at a time in rapid succession. First, uh, Susan leans over and says, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm, oh, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, 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 and I realize I am babbling. I realize I am very, very fried. Just at that second, the waiter comes over. He sees I haven't touched a bite of the food. Is everything all right, sir? And I blurt out, technical difficulties. And at this point, <laughs> Susan and her husband are kind of looking a little worried. And at this point, I realize uh, this is unraveling very quickly. And suddenly, I look up, and down the boardwalk, I see two people, and they're holding hands, and they're coming towards me, and it's a couple, and they're on roller skates, and they're midgets. <laughs> and they come skating down the boardwalk, and they pull up right, right in here, and the man leans over and says, you've got it, I can see it in your eyes. Not many of them have it anymore and I explode. This is the funniest thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life. I just, at the top of my lungs, am howling laugh. I, I, at this point, there's a huge scene. The, Susan and her husband are backing away from the table. Everybody that's there. I can't breathe. I'm laughing so hard, and I realize I am, there's no going back at this point. I reach into my wallet. I pull some money. I throw it on the table, and I walk out. And I've never seen those people again. I've never talked to them again. <laughs> <laughs> so I spend the next, you know, the rest of the afternoon having a very pleasant time, tripping my brains out in Venice Beach. Hours later, things return back to normal. I get on a plane and I fly home. 
Now, it's many years later. I'm much older. I'm more mature. Um, I, I no longer regularly have mescaline for breakfast on a Sunday morning. Um, but, you know, I turn on the TV, and there's these ads you see on the TV. It's for, like, a rental car company. And they always feature young, serious, purposeful business people. And they're striding through airports because they're on business trips. And when I see those ads, I think, that's nah, no business trip. <laughs> OK. Hey, next up, please welcome Tom Sandler. Tom. I think it's good. I think it's good. All right, I'm a walk-on here. About five minutes before I threw my paper into the hat. So uh, yeah, just dropped. We just my wife and daughter Eliza are here, and uh, we just dropped off my other. Well, I didn't drop her off. I gave the car keys to my daughter Julia, who just went to drove to Chatham to see a friend from her school, spend the night. She'll drive back tomorrow. And I was thinking about uh, as you know, she just turned 17. As I just gave her the car, I was thinking about. You know, well, there's tons of tons of parent teenage stories that we all can relate to that can fry us, but that's not what this is really about. This is more of a memory with my father, and um, I was 16, just 16. I think the uh, learner's permit was still wet with ink from uh, you know getting it from the DMV. It was it wasn't these beautiful cards that you get now, and and I just learned to drive and. My dad went to University of Pennsylvania down in Philadelphia for school, so I used to tag along with him every so often for a homecoming game or something like that. And so we went down in the Corolla, Toyota Corolla, <coughs> bright yellow, and and uh, spent the day, you know, cheering the, the the Penn Quakers. And my dad loves this stuff, and and just another great day with dad, one of many. Uh, uh, he was, you know about 35 years older than me at the time. He's still alive, so it sounds like he's, he's not. He's still around. And, um, and uh, we had a great day down at, down at Penn and, and uh, a lot of fun, fanfare. And, and we get back to the car, and he dangles the keys. He says, you want to drive home? And I was like, oh, you know, I wasn't ready for that. But uh, I was ready for it, I thought. So I'm driving, and I uh, head out and over the Schuylkill and over the Walt Whitman Bridge or where, wherever route we were taking onto the highway and everything was fine and like I said I was uh, maybe I was grabbing the wheel a little strongly and you know staying focused and everything everything was good until it started to rain a little bit it's getting a little darker too in the afternoon on that October day maybe and uh, I'm trying to remember this as I as I speak being a walk on here so so I'm walking I'm, I'm driving and it's getting worse and it's getting worse the rain is starting to come down and, and I am just just so focused and, and uh, any of us who started driving and, and then, then you have a, a long two and a half hour drive and then you have the rain and the highway and the trucks on Route 95 North, it was, a, it was, it was frying to, to preface the word a little bit. And I'm looking over at dad the whole time, you know, waiting for him to say, why don't you pull over and let me take the wheel, son. And it, and it didn't happen yet. And I'm looking over, I'm the dad, you know, you good? And he's like, He's fine. He's almost uh, in this in this trance of of mellowness, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? 
Uh, we head over the GW Bridge, um, and it's just, it's raining, it's dark, and, you know, I'm, I'm just, the, the, you know, the trucks coming by and spraying and the wipers, and I'm just learning how this thing works, no less uh, driving it. And I'm heading uh, the final leg of, uh, of the ride home. We, I'm, I'm, we lived in White Plains, New York. I'm, I'm from Sleepy Hollow now in, in uh in the burbs of uh, Westchester County. And the last leg coming off the GW Bridge is getting onto the Hutchison River Parkway. And anyone know the Hutchison River Parkway? Well, you know it maybe about, let's see, I'm, I just turned 50. So about 35, 34 years ago, the Hutch was not the way it was now, which is still nothing great. It was just crumbling and poorly lit and the bridges came right to, you know, that you go under right to the edge so there's no shoulder. And it's a snaking, you know, and then it's raining, it's pouring, and it's a Hutchison River Parkway, so, I mean, everything's flowing. <laughs> no trucks, but it's a death trap. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just, I mean, I, 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 there's, there's no separation between the steering wheel and myself. I keep looking over, and he doesn't say a word. He's just so calm, and he's like, he's like nerves of steel, and I'm just... I, I, it's, it's a moment. I think it's a moment. I don't know. I'm just getting barely there and as we pull into the driveway the last you know the last hundred feet and I pull in and I put the car in neutral he just looks over at me I, I mean I, I'm, I'm I don't even think I'm proud I'm just I'm exhausted fried beyond compare and uh, I look over at him and he just kind of looks over and puts his hand on my you know gives me a pat on the knee and just says well done and I go back to uh my dad's going to be 85 in a month, and uh, we still talk about this story. And I go back uh, to, to how the night began here before we decided to come here as I gave Julia the car keys and uh, think about all the, the, the journey. And, and as Eliza over there is going to be 15, and then we're going to go through the whole driving thing soon as well, how, how challenging, how, as a parent, how hard it is to sit back and watch and let and 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 ex let let the experience happen in your child it is not easy uh, as a parent uh, many of you know it is not easy as a kid to to feel it without the parent jumping in and superseding and uh and uh i just think about um where where i have come from that in terms of of the responsibility of 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 how hard it is to let that all happen. And uh, as, as I followed in my father's footsteps, I try to do the same thing with my kids. It's not always easy and kind of a, not the funniest mosquito I've ever heard, but sure, it sure meant a lot to me. And I wanna wish my dad a happy birthday through that. And I want to uh, wish my daughters all the luck in the world as they head on onto their roads with me in the passenger seat and eventually me just handing the keys over. Thanks so much. Welcome, Bill, to the stage. Yeah. I never thought when I woke up this morning I would be here doing this. Um, I am just in awe of everybody who's gone ahead, but kind of inspired me to think about a story. And the fried thing was hard for me to connect. Um, in 1972, um, my parents and my brother and I took a trip to a place called Martinique. It's an island in the Caribbean. 
1972, and like it is today, and I haven't been back since, um, there was nothing there except for the first Hilton that had ever been built. And we were the first, it was the first week of the, of the Hiltons being open in Martinique, and we were the first Americans to go there. Um, or so they told us, or that's how they treated us, because the manager came out, everybody was glad to see us. And anyway, it was this beautiful, modern, concrete building that's probably been torn down by now, but um, we, um, we, 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 we arrived and, and there was nobody there, and we had this pool, and the pool was just beautiful, bright, crystal clear water, and my brother and I uh, just spent the entire first day outside in that pool, and man, it was great. It, it, we, had, we had little bar service that, that my parents would sit by, and, and they would bring us food, and we had sandwiches, and the time just flew by, but we had no sunscreen. <laughs> and, and we literally got fried because because it was, the, you know, the equator's right there. And <laughs> that's hot, like not like we're used to, but really hot. And um, I remember that night, um, we were in like a triage in our, in, our, in our hotel room, lying on our stomachs while my mom would put this eight-hour cream, which is kind of like an A&D ointment on us, all over us. And we were just moaning. So our... Our one-week vacation was over at day two. We were not going back to the pool. We couldn't go out in the sun. Mom was into art, and Dad wasn't much, but, but we needed something to do. And Martinique had nothing really other than the Hilton and the sun and this great pool, which we couldn't use. So, we, um, so they went to the hotel, the manager, and explained you know, what, what else is there to do. Well, there's not much of a town, and there's really not. Mom wanted to find like local artisans, so local art. So... We, um, so they talked to the manager and they said, we'll have somebody, he'll come. And we waited all day in our room with this eight hour cream and you know, <laughs> practically bandaged up. And, um, and around dusk, after dinner, um, these two men we heard that were downstairs waiting for us. And they were these gargantuan, beautiful native black guys that just had unbelievable sort of sort of girth and and size and they were going to take us escort us to this artist who really wanted to see us um, fine okay so mom dad me and my brother go out and we're gonna get in to we figured a bus or something but it's just two little cars, two tiny cars, really small. We all wanted to go together, but we're four, and so they had to split us up, which was a moment right there for my parents, and I'm a parent now, and I kind of think about this, and I was thinking about your story, about how you see what your father does, and then, well, at any rate, you, you, you get this moment where, okay, my father's now gonna, we're in a foreign country, we're gonna split his family into two cars with guys he's never met before, gonna take us somewhere, and, they, and we did that. And all the time, Dad was like, sure, let's just do this. This is cool. We're just going to do this. And we drive out of this little civilized enclave into the real beauty of Martinique, which is a volcanic island with these incredible real rainforests. I've never been anything like it since, never will probably ever again. But we drive up into these winding mountain pass roads, and it is dark now. Is that the... 
Okay. Um, how am I doing on time? Am I okay? Am I halfway? Okay, okay. So we're driving through, and uh, this road is twisty, turvy, curvy, up and down, and it is dark. Like, I never have experienced darkness, because, you know, when you're driving someplace, all you can see is what the headlights illuminate. Everything else is darkness. And we're driving around. I remember one point we turned, <laughs> we turned a corner, and there were these natural springs everywhere. And one, there was a car with three guys, and the trunk was open, and it, we saw for a moment it was full of Evian bottles, empty Evian bottles. And the guys were at this spring <laughs> filling them, and they looked at us, and their eyes were like bright white because they'd just been so busted. And I said, Mom, that's Evian. I thought it comes from France. She said, look away. Look away. <laughs> so we did. Anyway, get to this. We get uh, out of time, but we finally arrive at our destination after what seemed like an, an eternity in, this, in these cars. We were all safe, we're together, and we go into this artist's house, and it is, it is full of art. The most beautiful, wild, uh, just, just uh, tropical. Um, in, in sort of the same way that the, this island is just so beautiful, this art was beautiful. And the, the artist, whose name I can't remember, sits down, with my father, and we are trapped, right? We're not going anywhere. It's not even a gallery. There's no, we can't walk out. We, they brought us there. We're there. And some negotiation starts. And, I, and I'm just a kid, and I don't know really what it is, but I know that they brought out the big piece, and Dad said no. They brought out the medium-sized piece, Dad said no. They brought out this small piece, and now I'm even sensing that it's time to go. That's. <laughs> Dad still no. Whatever he's asking, no, not not doing it. And I think it was I don't know. I think it was a lot of money, but 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 there was just no way he was going to do that. And we're kind of trapped. So it was this another thing. My my father, what are you doing? You got your family in the middle of the rainforest, and you're saying no to get out of here with like whatever. You could buy him a piece of art, buy just just the little one, and we can get out of here. He was not going to do it. He really didn't like art that much. <laughs> And so I think what, <laughs> what he finally came down to is the guy, dad wasn't budging and the, and the artist wasn't budging. And he said, of this last piece, well, I see how you feel. I see your wife likes this piece. Take it. And my dad said, well, this is, well, I mean, that, he, was, he was a businessman. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how that negotiation works. Um, but he took it, but he said, well, what, what, why are you offering this to me? He says, when you get to America, send me B.B. King albums. <laughs> I never heard of B.B. King before then, but when we got home, my mom went to the record store and bought every B.B. King album there was. She, I remember being, uh, looking at her in the, uh, on the kitchen, um, in the kitchen table. She had a stack of them this big, and she was wrapping them tight, and she was sending them back to that faraway island where we got fried and had no vacation but a great adventure. Can we have to the stage? Mm-hmm. 
Dan Wolf. So I know that, that those things on the paper are supposed to be anonymous, but the daughter who curled the other daughter's hair was my daughter. And so that's not fair because I'm up here getting one, one upstaged by you who aren't even getting up on the stage. That's pretty, that's rude. Anyway, before I get going, before the clock gets running, as a Jewish guy, I got to say, I totally relate to that. And I've never won anything either, but the closest I ever came was in ninth grade. Does anybody remember the candy Jujubees? Is anybody who's Jewish, like, did that ever seem weird that there was a candy named Ju it was like It was like some Zen thing, you know, Juju B. It's like, wow. So I actually wrote, I made this up, but I wrote the Juju B company that I had gotten a rat hair in a Juju B. And I actually remember writing the letter. It started, Dear Mr. Juju. Thinking, but back then everybody was like naive and believed each other. Everybody trusted. I actually got a huge carton of Juju Bs which God, if I'd eaten them, I'd be dead now. But it actually happened. So that was the closest I came to winning anything. Anyway, this is a, there, there is a fried component to this. The weird thing about this story is it's absolutely true. Everything I'm about to tell you is true because it's going to seem like I made it up, okay? So Cape Air, a lot of you know, I'm the founder of Cape Air. I'm still the CEO. I still fly on weekends and all that. After 9-11, we decided to do something new and adventurous because the, weir the world had become really weird. So we just started, decided to start an operation out in Guam in the Western Pacific. Anybody know where Guam is? It's a really, really far way away. And the hardest thing if you're starting an airline in Guam is to get airplanes there, right? How do you get an airplane to Guam? You don't take it apart, put it in a box, and send it. You actually have to fly it there. So the way to get a small airplane to Guam is you put extra tanks in it, like you fill it up with gasoline, like all the places where people sit are now gasoline, and then you send it on the first leg to Honolulu, Hawaii, where it stops, and then it goes to Kalajuwon, and then it goes to Panape, and then it goes to Yap, all those places that you're going after you're here in Wellfleet tonight, I'm sure, and then it ends up in truck, and then it ends up in Guam. That's how it gets there. So I'm actually, airplanes are on their way. I'm actually at a fire cookout with uh, actually Kevin and Marla Rice at their house with a bunch of Welflesh and friends. And my cell phone rings and I pick it up and I'm barely getting the, the reception here in Wellfleet. And I pick it up and this voice on the other end says, is this Mr. Wolf? And I said, yeah, it is. I'll play along. I thought it was a, a, a wrong number or something. He says, hi, this is the pilot for your airplane. And I'm thinking, that's really interesting. And he said, I'm sitting poolside in Honolulu. And I'm thinking, that's not a good sign. And I have to tell you where your airplane is. Your, your airplane is on Anawitak. Does anybody, has anybody ever heard of Anawitak? One person in the back, OK? Anawitak. So this is before the days of Googling, but I'm like searching through how do I find out what Anawitak is? Because it isn't Panape, it isn't Kalajuwon, it isn't Yap, and it isn't Truck. So it's not where the airplane is supposed to be. Plus, the airplane is in Anawitak, and this guy is poolside in Honolulu. That's not a good thing. So here's where the fried comes in. It turns out that Anawitak Atoll, remember, everything I'm telling you is true, is the place on the face of the planet that has had more nuclear devices detonated on it than any other single place. It has had 43 nuclear bombs exploded on the island of Anawitak between 1946 and 1953. 43 nuclear bombs. That island is? You bet. That island is fried. They had, 
moved the tribe of Anahuitoc off the island to do this, thankfully. That was the U.S. government's, I guess, way of being nice. They moved the tribe off. They blew up all of these bombs on it, like the top melted into this glacious type of, uh, type of um, material. Under the Jimmy Carter administration in the late 70s, the tribe wanted its island back, God knows why, and the U.S. government, trying to accommodate the tribe, plowed all of the topsoil into a big mound, I'm not making this up, it's absolutely true, and then encased the mound in four feet of solid concrete and steel, and then moved the tribe back to Anahuitoc. Remember, I'm doing all this investigation thinking this is where our fucking airplane is, it's in fucking Anahuitoc. So I'm having now a vision. You actually can Google Earth it. Do it when you go home so you'll know I'm not making it up. It's just a freaking runway with like a bunch of like huts on it and then a big mound concrete, you know, encased nuclear waste, okay? So what do you do? So we called up and said, okay, the tribe is there. They were moved back under the Jimmy Carter administration. The airplane is there. I asked the guy, who is overseeing the airplane? Because big airline airplanes, it's a 50-seat airplane, have to be under surveillance all the time. The guy says to me, poolside, drink in hand, don't worry about your airplane, Mr. Wolf. I said, worry? Me worry? Why would I worry about the airplane? It's an Anahuitoc. I'm sure it's fine. Who's guarding the airplane? He says, the chief is guarding the airplane. I said, the chief is guarding the airplane in Anahuitoc. Where is the chief? He's in his hut. I said, where is the hut? It's next to the airport. When you Google Earth Anahuitoc tonight, you will see the hut has to be next to the airport because all Anahuitoc is is a runway with a bunch of huts next to it. I didn't know that at that time. So I have this vision now of a chief in a hut guarding an airplane on a runway in an atoll in the Western Pacific. This is all true, okay? It really and truly is. We get a hold of the chief through the State Department. The chief wants $42,000 to get the airplane off of Anahuitoc, which doesn't matter because at that point I'm saying, take the brakes off, put the airplane by the end of the runway, which has got to be near water, and blow on it or something. But that's not what ended up happening. We had to actually rescue the airplane from Anahuitoc. We flew a crew to Ponape. And I call the crew the night before they're going to Anahuitoc to get the airplane, and it's all staticky, a bad connection, because, hey, it's a long way away if you're talking to Ponape, right? And I say to him, this is a horrible connection. I can barely hear you. And he says, actually, it's not a bad connection. I've never seen it rain so hard. By this point, we had internet. So I Google Ponape. Google Ponape. Ponape, the place on Earth where it rains more than anywhere else. And what I was actually hearing was rain hitting the roof of the hotel that the crew was going to go on to go rescue the airplane. Tiffany and Russell were the crew that were going to go out and get the airplane up in Anahuitoc, 500 miles from Ponape. We chartered an airplane to go to Anahuitoc, the fried island, to get the airplane. We call the chief. We say, we've got a rescue crew coming. It's Russell and Tiffany. Stop. Tiffany, there's a problem. What's the problem? Is Tiffany a woman? Yes, Tiffany is a woman. You can't send Tiffany to Anahuitoc to get the airplane. Why not? Remember, all this is true. If you send Tiffany to get the airplane, they are going to think that you are trading Tiffany for the airplane. Like, you know, I was raised in the era of feminism. I'm having trouble believing this, okay? But we were actually convinced of that. So we had to send back to Guam to get a pilot uniform because they weren't going to be dressed in uniforms to get the airplane. Tiffany, dressed up as a pilot uniform in the pilot, but a hat, tucked her hair up under the hat. She flew up to Ponape. She ran from our airplane into the flight deck of the big airplane, slammed the door. They, f they started the airplane up, and they took off from 
Anna Weetok. And I hope never to go back to that little, beautiful, fried Western Pacific island again. Thank you. All right. Next storyteller is Richard Diamond. Welcome, Richard Diamond, to the stage. Hi, everybody. Um, I, I want to talk to you about something a little bit more mundane, which is just my education. Uh, and my education, really, in, in two different things. Uh, one of them is what California's like, and the other is children. Um, how many of you have been around San Francisco and Berkeley? Were any of you around there in the 70s? Well, uh, see, I'm an East Coast kid. Uh, went to school on the East Coast, loved the East Coast. And uh, after law school, I found that I was uh, the only job I could get was clerking for a judge in San Francisco. So I uh, flew out there and didn't know anything about uh, San Francisco or Berkeley. Met the woman who uh, eventually became my wife. Some people here know. Uh, I now have uh, two kids in their late 20s and a grandchild who's 17, but that's another story. Um, but uh, Well, uh, I, I went out there, and very soon after I got there, I, I met Wendy, my, my spouse, still my spouse. And Wendy sort of introduced me to uh, California. I was uh, 27 at the time. Uh, and uh, it, it quickly became apparent to me that California is not like the East Coast. Um, the first thing she did was she introduced me to this woman who she really, really admired who was the mother of her former husband. Now, I don't know about you, but most people I know don't introduce you to the parents of their former husband. But she was very nice. She was a communist labor organizer, and she's a really interesting person. Uh, Wendy also introduced me to these wild movie theaters in San Francisco and Berkeley, but we won't talk about them because you can't rent the movies anymore. Um, and she also sort of introduced me to the, the culture in Berkeley, which for those of you who don't know, there are lots and lots of street people. This was the 70s, Vietnam demonstrations, everything's going on. Uh, needless to say, you can buy drugs anywhere you want. The smell of marijuana, hashish is just everywhere in the air. And uh, it, it was kind of just a really uh, neat place. Um, <laughs> now, the... The other thing she did was to introduce me to a friend of hers uh, whose name is Nancy Friedberg. Uh, that isn't really her name, but for reasons, that's what I'm going to call her. Um, Nancy, I, I should have known uh, th that this was going to be a little bit of an odd experience because Nancy had two kids. They were 5 and 11, and their names were Jed and Luke. Now, not very many Jewish parents name their kids Jed and Luke. Indeed, they're the only ones I've ever met. Um, and I spent a lot of time with them, became really good friends with the kids, and found out, of course, that California kids are a little bit odd. Um, the 11-year-old kept trying to sell me dope, uh, which he said he could get easily in school. Um, but I sort of uh, got a, this friendship going with his younger brother, whose name was Luke. 
And I, I had no, no experience with children. I never babysat, never took care of children. It just, uh, it was a new experience. And one fine day, I got up the courage, and I uh, asked Nancy if I could uh, take Luke with me for uh, a day. And uh, the place where I took him was to the, uh, the Oakland Zoo. Uh, now, the Oakland Zoo is a very nice zoo. Um, we went in there and we started walking around. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Luke said, gee, can I have an ice cream cone? I said, well, it's a little bit early, but you know, uh, I'm not going to say no to the kid. So uh, we got an ice cream cone and he <laughs> ate it. Uh, and then about five minutes later, he looked at me and he said, uh, I'm still hungry. I want to get another ice cream cone. At this point, I'm starting to feel a little bit uh, beyond my league. I just don't know quite what to do, so I give in and get him his second ice cream cone. And uh, he eats that, and uh, pretty soon he looks at me and he says, you know, I'd really like another ice cream cone. <laughs> and I finally got up my gumption and said, uh, look, Luke, you know, you've had two, no. And he said, you don't love me. Uh, you Berkeley kids are not like other kids. This kid's five, okay? Uh, and we continued on our way. And one of the things they have at the Oakland Zoo, it, it's hard to describe. It's like a ski lift. It, you take off, and it, it's a, an elevated thing. And you sit in a little car that hangs from a cable. And it goes over all of the needless to say, non-dangerous parts of the zoo. So it goes over the elephants, but not the lions. Um, and he and I get on this thing, and we're going along, and we're having a good time. And the last exhibit is the, uh, the veldt, or wherever they keep all the animals that sort of live in the plains, and they don't all go together. But as we're coming uh, into the landing of this thing, uh, I look down, and... Uh, we're over the camel exhibit. And uh, as we get a little bit closer, uh, it, it becomes apparent that one of the camels is uh, sitting that way camels have on their four legs, sort of on the ground with all the legs under them. And there's another camel. And the other camel is sort of on the back of the first camel. <laughs> and the other camel is clearly doing what male camels do under these circumstances. Not that it was that clear. Um, and as we get closer to this, uh, Luke looks at me and he says, what are they doing? Now, I don't know about you, but in the next 10 seconds, which took about three days in my mind, <laughs> trying to figure out what you tell somebody else's five-year-old about this situation. Uh, and I just about got to the point of wanting to say something when he looked back at me and he said, oh, they're just screwing. <laughs> and as I've said to you, Berkeley kids aren't like other kids. But I never forgot it. And the next person up is Everett Doninger. Everett Doninger.
Hi. So um, as we came in tonight, I realized there was um, like two little things that connected to my story that I thought I'd share. So um, I, this was unintentional. I wore the shirt. It's a, I'm, a, I'm a transplant recipient. Um, I got two new lungs uh, exactly three months ago today. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So the reason that I needed two lungs is that I have a genetic disorder called cystic fibrosis. Some of you may have heard of it. I'm not going to get into the greedy details, take too long. Um, <clears throat> but my story actually comes from about 15 years ago. Um, it was the first time I've really gotten sick. So most people with CF are, are really heavily affected in early childhood. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, a family that was unbelievably attentive and supportive and kept me really healthy. Um, so in about sixth grade, I, I got my first bacterial infection in my lungs. And I needed to have a pick line put in my arm. So essentially, I had a, a big tube that they could inject a lot of uh, medication into, put in my arm, and it would run through an artery uh, to just close to my heart. So they could really get at these infections directly. Um, so and something that I was really interested in uh, was reenacting. I loved, I still love the Civil War. I don't reenact at this time, but now that I have new lungs, I, I can maybe get it back into it. Um, so one of the big things in reenacting is called Farby, and it's sort of a short version of Farby it for me to be representing someone from the Civil War. Um, so I was very young. I wasn't one of the guys carrying a gun or anything, but um, I would go. We were this summer after uh, probably sixth grade. We went down to Maryland for a huge reenactment for the Battle of Antietam. It was the biggest one I have ever gone to. There's hundreds and hundreds of reenactors, uh, and I was really excited. There's a couple of other young guys uh, in the the unit that I that I went with, and uh, and the problem for me was that I had this like top of the line technology keeping me alive while trying to also represent uh, the Civil War. And I had my little dog tent, really just a piece of canvas folded over some sticks and some straw. And I had my, my whole wool uniform. And um, it was all authentic, but I had this, this piece of technology in me that sort of made, kept me from being really you know, into it and part of it. Um, <clears throat> so it was actually a three-day reenactment. On the second day, we all woke up and and we were a little tired from the day before. So me and some of the younger guys who have chores to do decided it might be a little bit more fun to just hang out and play poker behind the tents. Um, so we all got dressed up in the lighter, the lighter uniforms. We didn't have to put our jackets on yet. And I kept, I kept having this weird sensation um, right around here. And it was like a muscle tick. You know, you get a little tick like near your eye or something, your muscle just sort of agitating. And, and it kept happening. And I, I, I just, I didn't know really, I, you know, there's nothing I could do about it, so I just kind of pointed and tried to hydrate in case something was going on, because it's Maryland in the middle of the summer, it's really hot, and I'm wearing wool clothes. So we get caught playing cards <laughs> behind the, the tents, and the, the captain tells us that we have to take the muskets, hold them over our heads, and do laps around our camp for a while. And this is all before anything's even happening. They're still having coffee. So we, we get up, and we're, we're running laps, and we're sweating, and it's just this thing is... It's driving me crazy. It's like this little like tick, and I can't figure out what it is. It's like just here under my the edge of my pant. And so then it's time to, to muster up. The, the battle's going to get started. And the problem is when you've got thousands of reenactors, getting them all coordinated together requires radios, but we'll pretend that's not happening. You, you get them all together, and you line them up, and then you make them wait for a long time. So we got all dressed up in the full wooden uni wool uniform, 
it's like it's like three layers of wool. Plus, we have to carry bags and canteens because our job as the young guys is to run around and bring water to all of the adults who have been shooting the guns and running around the field. So we're mustered up. We're standing in lines at attention. They tell us we can go at ease, which really just means you can stand like this, which really isn't much of a break when you're standing in the sun for three hours. So this thing is becoming a real problem, this muscle tick. And it just keeps going off. And at one point, I just get frustrated. And I just, I just whacked myself right in the hip. And all of a sudden, there's a scramble in my pants. I mean, I'm, there's like something going, there's something in my pants. And I, I determined on that day that I have very cat-like reflexes. Because I managed to grab whatever was in my pants just below where the inseam comes together. Now, nobody around me has noticed that I'm holding myself and kind of freaking out because I'm like 12. I didn't know what to do. And I, you know, so I'm looking at the next, the guy next to me, he's a sergeant, and I was like, listen, I think there's something in my pants. And he looks at me and he goes, what the hell are you doing? Is there something in my pants? And he goes, well, it's probably like a big cricket or something. And I was like, no, it's not crunchy. I can feel. I'm holding it. It's not crunchy. Well, what is it doing? I don't know. It's like wiggling. I, it's in my pants. So, so at this point, a couple of guys are turned around, and they're all just, at this point, it's entertainment because they're bored standing in this field. So I, eventually, I was like, I, I think it's, I stopped moving. I think it might be dead. And we still have no idea what it is. So finally, so finally he goes, well, you have to let your pants go because we're going to have to march in like 10 minutes. It's like, dude, there's something in my pants. So, so finally I decide that I'm going to like lay my leg out and turn like my pant into a chute and just <laughs> let it go and hope it slides right out. So I, so I, I get ready and all the guys around me are like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. They're like betting on whether it's alive. So I let it go, and it slides. A field mouse like this big slides out of my pants. It was in my pants the whole time. I couldn't believe it. So then the sergeant comes over, and he picks it up by the tail, and he goes, it's your first kill, son. Thank you. It's going to be Jim C. Jim C. Thank you. This has been great. I've, I, I've really enjoyed listening to all of the storytellers. Um, I enjoy story telling stories. Um, usually it's to one other person, maybe three or four, not 40. Um, and, and the title for this, I originally wrote it out I didn't quite understand the procedure, so I thought we were supposed to have a short little thing. And I, the, the title is, it's called Cherry Vodka. Um, and it, it goes back to when I was 16, and I had a sort of um, volatile adolescence. I had left home in um, Alabama at about the age of 14 and wound up in Eastern Oregon um, at the age of 16. And that was having, um, gotten uh, 
removed from uh, both a foster home and a um, an, uh, a religious boarding school because of a a small bag of dope that was in the sock in my drawer, and it, it actually wasn't even mine, but I was with the people it belonged to, and we didn't get high, although we smoked a lot of it. But anyway, um, there I was in the Spokane lockup for eight days, and, and that was a sobering experience, and I learned that Hey Jude can be one of the saddest songs you ever hear if you hear it a lot. <laughs> and, um, and I had a fellow with me for a couple of days. Several days I was just there by myself. And I had a fellow with me a couple of days who had really good ideas about stealing cars. Um, and, and we were both supposed to go to a, a, what they called a boy's ranch, which is like a prison for kids. And at the time, at 16, um, actually no, I was 15, but gonna be 16 pretty soon. It, it sounded like a pretty good setup. I'm, I'm really glad that I, that, I, I didn't have a chance to work on that um, plan. Um, instead, a friend from the boarding school had gotten um, her parents to say they would put me up, and they lived in a little town called Hermiston, Oregon, which is about 5,000 people in eastern Oregon. If you know Oregon, the eastern side of the state's not at all like Portlandia. It's high desert. Most of it's agribusiness. It's small towns that in some ways are very conservative. But for me, in some ways, it was a godsend, but still as a 15 and then 16-year-old, it was a new school. When you get to a new place, you always, um, well, you have you know, other guys who want to kick your ass. And I somehow managed to sort of talk my way out of all those circumstances and made some good friends. And one of them was a fellow named Dan Weezer. And one evening, it was in April. And April in the desert, this is kind of high desert country, is very nice because you get rain and you get flowers out in the countryside. And what we did have, there wasn't a lot going on. Usually on a Friday night, there would be a dance at the um, county fairhouse uh, fairgrounds. Um, and, and people would do something called dragging the gut, which was driving up and down. I think it's kind of an automobile equivalent of the sort of um, Spanish paseo. You're sort of out and about, and during that time you're either meeting girls or you're trying to avoid fights or pick fights with people from other towns who ride their cars over. Um, but the dances could be a lot of fun, and so Dan Weezer was going to pick me up for one, and he had a bottle of cherry vodka. And um, we had a little of it before we went to the dance, and we went, and then during the, we took a break. And we rode back out to the desert, and I remember it was a great time. We, we managed to drink the whole bottle. When you're, when you're 16, you, you, probably until you get to be into your 40s, you can eat and drink a lot of things that then are no longer possible. <laughs> but but with, that was a shorter arc. We went back to the dance, and I think it was a pretty good time, but to be honest, I, I have no memory. But what I do remember is the sort of the Red Sea that at some time during the night, because when I woke up in the morning, I got up very early, um, there was foul smelling, but bright red vomit all over my bedding. And, and so I was getting up because I had a, I had a, not an after school job, but a before school job that involved moving irrigation pipe. It was something that had to happen in farming areas. So it was about light, it was about 5.36, and I dragged all the bedding into the, um, 
the, the, the garage where the washing machines were kept and I went to work. And I still remember um, heaving my guts about three times while moving those irrigation pipes. And even my employer came along at one point and asked, he said, are you all right? And, and I, 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 I said something like, oh yeah, I'm fine. I think he sort of followed my, um, my receding red tide. Um, anyway, I, I learned uh, two lessons. This is really about the College of Self Knox. I learned two lessons. One, the body has memory. I have never been able to tolerate even the sniff of a flavored vodka. Um, and that is now, I guess, um, going on about um, uh, 46 years ago. Um, and the other thing I learned, um, and this was in some ways, uh, these were good lessons, was that um, hard work, in particular hard physical work, will, will, will cure a lot of self-inflicted pain. Um, and, and, and also that the people I was living with were really good people. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.